0: with me to mark chapter 12 verses 35 to 37 that'll be our text this morning mark twelve thirty-five to 37 i will read the passage and pray for god's blessing on our time and go from there we're returning to the gospel of mark where we find jesus in jerusalem uh, having conversations with various groups of people and and uh, picks up here in Verse 35. By the way, if you're following along in one of the Bibles that we provide in the seats in front of you, you'll find this text either on page 797 or 849, depending on which edition. Here's our text. Here's the word of the Lord. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. God, we open the pages of your word asking for your blessing on our hearing of it. We pray for your blessing on my speech that I would be clear and faithful in explaining and applying what you have for us this morning. God, we know that Jesus in him is a treasury of wisdom that we will never plumb the depths of. And we pray that your spirit would make the wisdom of Christ, the teaching of Christ, and the person of Christ vivid and clear in our hearts. That we would see him for who he is and for the nature of his reign over all things. Just as we sang hallelujah to the Lord of Lords who reigns above heaven and earth, we pray that you would help us to see and to grasp more specifically and more fully what that means. And that you'd bring from our hearts a response of yielded praise and devotion and trust. If there are any in this room who are hearing the word of Christ and don't yet know him, We pray that you would give them a vivid recognition of his reality, his lordship, his grace for sinners, and their great need of him, and that you'd cause them to flee to him for refuge, even this morning. We pray your blessing on our time in more ways than we could think to ask. And we pray all this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a normal human activity to look for salvation from the big, awful problems that plague our world. And so often, what do we find our neighbors doing? And what do we find our own hearts doing? Looking around at the world horizontally. Looking at other people. At men and women. And parties and programs. And movements and bureaucracies and armies and organizations. We're seeking salvation. More to the point, Though we seldom admit it in these terms to our freedom-loving American selves, we are seeking someone to rule us in a way that will remedy the gaping wounds of this world and our own lives. What can fix the brokenness? Can the answer be found in the human realm? Maybe political, maybe economic, maybe military, maybe technology. Well, don't we always find that our self-appointed saviors always eventually fail us and they disappoint us every political cycle there's this new set of promises that this time it'll be different this time we'll, we'll we'll get it done we'll do it right every time every time and the world doesn't seem to have changed very much has it they're like the sharp and broken off reed that'll pierce your hand if you lean on it and sometimes we believers are even tempted to do the same thing and fill that role with christ and Christianity if we can finally get ourselves in the driver's seat in this world, if we can take the culture for Christ, what beautiful things might we accomplish in this imminent, this worldly order? Well, today we're going to fix our eyes upon Jesus on his terms. And God's message for us in these three short verses of Mark 12 is that Jesus reigns on a heavenly throne. Jesus reigns on a heavenly throne throne. Now kids, little inside scoop here. If you're on your way home or if you're at lunch and your parents ask you if you picked up anything from the sermon, just one little thing, this is what you're going to tell them, okay? Jesus reigns on a heavenly throne. You're welcome. That's the main idea. And we're going to see five important facets of this reign as we go. The first one, the first facet of Jesus's reign is that Jesus reigns as a human son of David. Jesus reigns as a human son of David. Now let's consider how this passage runs. In verse 35, Jesus asks his audience a question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Then in verse 36, he brings in a biblical quotation to kind of spice up the question. And then in verse 37, he draws out a paradox from that biblical quotation and he reasks the question. So he starts with the question Then he kind of makes it more interesting with a biblical quotation that kind of creates a paradox. So the question is, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, he's talking about the Jewish experts in God's law. We've encountered them before in Mark. They studied the Old Testament prophecies, and they came to the right conclusion that the Christ or Messiah, which is the same thing, the Greek and Hebrew terms that both mean the anointed one, is supposed to be a descendant of David in fulfillment of all of God's promises to David, of an eternal reign for his descendant. We've already seen this Davidic connection in Mark. You might remember back in 10 verse 47 when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and blind Bartimaeus cries out to him and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then later on, as he's actually entering Jerusalem, in chapter 11, verse 10, the crowd welcomes Jesus into the city by heralding the coming kingdom of our father, David. So David has been in the mix here with regard to who Jesus is and the connection to him being the Messiah. Later on, the Apostle Paul will write very clearly in Romans 1-3 that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh. Now, that's a description of his human origin. In our text, though, it might kind of seem like Jesus is denying this one. He says, How can it be? How can it be that the Christ is the Son of David? Is he saying the Christ is not the Son of David? No, he's not saying that this is not the case. He's setting up a puzzle. He's kind of setting them up with, How could this be? How could this be? In view of what I'm going to show you in verse 36. What we're going to see is that Son of David is. A right way to identify Christ, but it is insufficient. It's not a high enough confession about his identity. And the problem with it is that if you take that alone and you only think of him as the son of David, it could lead to some, it will lead to some mistaken conclusions about him. The scribes were expecting a human Messiah to come and to restore Israel in a national political way. So if Jesus were to climb right into that set of expectations and say, Yep, that's me. I'm the guy. I'm the son of David. What it would naturally lead people to expect is an earthly kingdom now. An earthly kingdom now. And that's the reason why throughout Mark, we, we saw it especially chapters ago, that there's this veiled nature of his identity, that he's intentionally not being completely out in the open with his being the Christ. As we'll see shortly, that decidedly is not what Jesus wants, an earthly kingdom now. But we shouldn't rush past his humanity. It is important for us to regard and consider for two reasons, at least. The first reason is, I think every one of you, yes, we're all humans. (laughs) Everyone I think is listening to me is human. The king of heaven is one of us. Someone with the same nature, the same flesh and blood, and a rational soul like us rules over all things. Ever stop and think about that? Don't we feel a special sense of ownership when one of our local guys, who's kind of like us, makes it to the big time? Now, I come from a city, Bakersfield, that finds itself in the punchline of many jokes. But guess what? Bakersfield has produced some country music legends. Buck Owens and Merle Haggard, Beloved local products. Do you think Bakersfield is proud of these local boys? Absolutely. They have streets named after them. Up until a month ago, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives was from Bakersfield. He's no longer the Speaker of the House (laughs) of Representatives. But do you think that him being in that position gave the city a sense of pride and a sense of belonging? Country music stardom fades, and politicians get kicked out of the Speaker's seat, for instance, as we've seen. But our man is in heaven, the pinnacle of all that exists, and he's there forever, and he's one of us. The second reason his humanity matters is that it shows how God has worked in material flesh and blood history to bring about supernatural saving purposes. It's amazing how God used and uses history to bring about this salvation. Jesus was, and Jesus still is, a person able to be seen and heard and touched with physical senses. He came from a human woman Mary, herself the product of normal human procreation. God is able to act through history making works of transcendent importance and miracles are involved because of, you know, the virgin birth. He came from a woman in miraculous means, but he uses ordinary materials. And so this should make us marvel at his power and his creativity to bring about uh, these these wonderful works, even through history, even through uh, material reality, his creation. So Jesus reigns as a man, fully human as we are. But second, Jesus reigns as the divine Son of God. Jesus reigns as the divine Son of God. Now let's get into this quote in verse 36. This is where the plot thickens. Jesus is quoting from the psalm that we read earlier in the service, Psalm 110. It's verse 1. David writing, he identifies writing in the Holy Spirit, so it's inspired scripture. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And the whole focal point of this whole passage is this line, The Lord said to my Lord. It sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Uh, The English text that Jesus quotes, I'm sorry, the Greek text that Jesus is quoting, is a translation of the original Hebrew, the Old Testament written in Hebrew. Hebrew. Now the Hebrew uses two different words for Lord. Like our English Bible, the Greek uses the same word to translate both. Maybe not the most helpful choice, but that's what they do. But it's legitimate. It's the two words um, so yeah, in Greek it's it's the same word both times. In English, it's the same word both times. In the Hebrew, the first Lord is Yahweh. That special covenant name for God that describes his unique divine nature and he reveals himself using the same Yahweh to Israel in covenant with them. It's been called God's proper name. Yahweh is not like the word God, which is used sometimes generically in the case of gods, like lowercase g, gods. We say there's God and then there's the gods. But Yahweh is only ever used of him. It's his proper name. There are no little Yahwehs. The second Lord in verse 36 is the Hebrew word Adonai which means something a lot more like our word Lord or Master. It's an exalted title. It is used numerous times of God in the Old Testament, but it's not an exclusive title for God. It's Lord or Master. You might call an exalted person, something like that. So then um, Jesus is highlighting the fact that, that David addresses somebody this way. The Lord said to my Lord. And in verse 37, he brings home this paradox. He's saying, look, David calls him the Christ, the Messiah, Lord. How can that be? How can David call his descendant, my Lord, Adonai? Who calls his own son or grandson, Lord? Your many, many times great-grandson should call you Lord, right? The younger one should should have deference to and honor for the elder. Why would he call his own son, Lord? Now, Jesus' argument assumes that they all agree... That when David says, my Lord, in Psalm 110, he is talking about the Messiah. If they didn't agree on that, the scribes would just say, well, he's not talking to the Messiah. You're creating a false, uh, a needless problem, a false dilemma. You're confused about who he's talking about. They don't say that. They recognize that this is an address to the Messiah. Everyone gets that. Now, what do I mean by calling this a paradox? Paradox paradox is a pair of truths each one is true i just call them truths. so yeah they're true each truth is true and they make sense on their own but when you put them together they seem to contradict each other and you say well how is this true this one seems true this one seems true but they can't both seem to be true and so it's a puzzle and it forces us to reflect deeply on in what sense can they both be true how is it possible that they're both true so One um, famous ancient paradox was formulated by a guy named Heraclitus of Ephesus, about 500 years before Jesus, and you may have heard of this one. He said, it's impossible to step in the same river twice. Impossible to step into the same river twice. Now think about it. Today, after church, at some point, you go down to the American River and you step in it. It's probably cold. You step in the American River. Then tomorrow, so that's true, true statement, you stepped in the American River. Tomorrow, you go back, and you do what? You step in the exact same place. You stepped in the American River. In one sense, you can step in the same river twice. But what this paradox is saying is, in another sense, it's not the same river. If you think about the river as the actual water rushing past, you're touching different stuff. You're touching a different river in the sense of the water itself. So that's kind of the point of a paradox, is it kind of forces you to go, well, in one sense, this is true. In one sense, that's true. It all depends on how you kind of define your terms. That's what paradoxes do. They they, they force reflection. So here's Jesus' paradox. Messiah is David's son, so he seems lesser than David, but he's called my Lord by David, so he's greater than David. He's David's Lord. How can those both be? And what he's pushing his hearers to realize is that the Christ, who, by the way, he's not yet claiming to be, yet he will. The Christ is more than a mere man. He's more than a mere descendant of David. In fact, he's God. He's distinguished from Yahweh on the one hand. That's another paradox we won't get into. Distinguished from Yahweh, but he's also a divine figure himself. Now you might be thinking, wait a second. Isn't it possible that my Lord just describes an exalted man? Does it have to be divine in, in Psalm one ten one and in verse 36 of our text? Does it have to be God? That's a good question. Look at what the Lord is doing. He is inviting this person to sit aside his throne in a place of preeminence. This would be understood as sharing his reign and sharing his glory. Now, if you know Yahweh, he doesn't do that. He is righteously jealous for his singular glory elsewhere. You see, in places like Isaiah, it's impossible to imagine the Lord doing this to a created lesser being. He says in Isaiah 42.8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And he says later on in Isaiah 45.23, To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance to me. I'm the one on the throne. In our text, this, the, the, the picture of enemies subdued under the Messiah's feet are hinting toward, maybe there will be knees bowed toward, My Lord. For this other figure. Maybe there will be tongues confessing him. And that, that he, Philippians 2 closes the loop on that very explicitly in saying, it's Jesus that God exalts. It's Jesus who shares Yahweh's glory. Jason preached on this uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's Jesus who does receive that knees bowing and tongues swearing. So the one sitting at the right hand of Christ, I'm sorry, the one, the Christ, who sits at the right hand of God is God. He's distinct from God in one sense. He is the son of God, but he is also himself divine. It's like what John 1.1 1, 1 says. It gives us, again, it's paradoxical. The word was with God, and the word was God. And it's texts like this that pressure us, and in the history of the church, have caused the church to distinguish between a shared divine nature and distinctions between persons. There are, seem to be two figures called God, and yet there's only one God. That's one way that the Bible testifies to the doctrine of the Trinity, texts like this. But let's bring this home. What does it mean for us? What is the importance for us that Jesus is not only a man, but the Son of God? Why do both of his natures matter? Well, it matters very much. If you don't get both his deity and humanity, you have a false Christ And you have a lesser Christ who is no Christ at all. All of the cults that deny the the full deity of Christ, I'm thinking of Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses, who are basically just uh, a newer uh, manifestation of the old ancient Arian heresy. They end up missing the true Christ entirely. They have a different Christ. John Calvin in the 16th century, writing on this, he made an insightful observation about Christological heretics, people who distort who Christ is. And he says what they do is to overturn sometimes his human and sometimes his divine nature. So sometimes they'll mess with his humanity and deny his full humanity. Sometimes they'll mess with his deity and deny that. That either he might not have full power to save us or we might not have ready access to him. You see that? You you get really messed up. If either Christ isn't enough like us, he's not truly one of us, we don't have access to him as one of our own, or he's like us, but he's not God, and he can't fully save us. A non-human Christ denies us ready access, and a non-divine Christ is impotent to bring us into union with God, which is what Christian salvation is. It's union with God. We need the whole Christ, divine and human, And for those of us who do know the whole Christ, who recognize him, what a fathomless treasure we have in him. This is the mystery of the God-man. And as we enter Advent season, this is uh, as good a time as any to once again consider these depths, that the eternal God would clothe himself with flesh and become one of us. That the infinite would step into real experience of finitude and limitation while losing nothing of what he always was. This is our Christ, human to represent us, and God to execute our salvation. So, he reigns as, as a man, and he reigns as a son of God. Thirdly, Jesus reigns over his people and his enemies by his word. Jesus reigns over his people and his enemies by his word. Now, to see this feature in the text, we need to glance backward and remember the context. What has been going on recently in Mark? Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in the temple complex on Passover week. And he has just faced a barrage of challenge questions from various enemies. 11.28, by what authority are you doing these things? 12.14, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 12:23. They had this weird scenario of a woman who was widowed seven times, and they say, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? These are all challenges meant to trip him up, either get him to incriminate himself or uh, to, to, to show how he's wrong about his, his theology. Finally, there was a more honest question. This wasn't as bad faith a question like the others in 1228. Which commandment is the most important of all? But he's faced largely hostile questioning, and he's, he's taken wave after wave of attack. But after playing all that defense and successfully fending off every attempt to trip him up, now he's the one asking the questions. He's flipping from defense to offense. That's significant. He's saying, now I have a question for you all. It's about David. It's about what David said about the Christ. So what we have here is Jesus surrounded by enemies engaging in verbal combat, in disputation with ideas. And by the end of verse 37, the crowd is pleased, but it seems like their their um, delight, their approval is superficial, their understanding is superficial, because as soon as chapter 15, they will be calling for his blood. So their approval doesn't mean much. They like it, though. They probably like it that he's sticking it to the scribes. But what's interesting is that if you go back to Psalm 110, the text that Jesus quotes from here in verse 36, and you keep on reading. Sometimes you just read a little bit more and you find some interesting connections. You can see another prophecy in verse 2 of Psalm 110 that Jesus is even right now fulfilling. He says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. And his ruling scepter in this moment in Jerusalem, in the temple, is his word. He's using what Paul will later call the sword of the spirit, the word of God, as his sword, his weapon for piercing the inner thoughts and intentions of the heart and laying bare these people's hearts. It's his hammer for shattering the hardness of man's minds. It's his rod of iron for ruling the nations. It's his word. Jesus rules his enemies By his word, he is surrounded, but he's not outmatched. By his own world-creating words, he does everything. He convicts of sin. He condemns sinners. In Revelation's vision of his climactic future return, in Revelation 19, what is the weapon he wields? Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. It's his tongue. That's his sword. He rules his enemies by his words, by his wisdom. He also rules his people by his word. Sometimes the barrage of his word does more than destroy. Sometimes it converts. Sometimes it creates life in the spirit. And it makes us new creatures and it nurtures new life in us. This is it's doing, I trust, right now among us this morning, as pilgrims on our way to glory. He rules his enemies and he rules his people by his words. All throughout history, and we can look at our own lives even, Jesus' words have proven powerful to convert hearts in ways that no amount of power, no amount of, of, of fleshly power, tanks or bombs or muscles or money or excavators or electrons cannot do what his words do, to change hearts. You've probably seen it if you've been walking with Christ, if you've shared the gospel with others and you've seen him transform lives. If you're trusting in Jesus today, it's because his word went on a conquest and overpowered your soul and gave you life. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, then his words that you're hearing from the pages of scripture are both the most beautiful and the most dangerous things that you will ever hear. It all depends on how you respond. What kind of confrontation will it be as you encounter Christ's words Will they win you over or will they destroy you? Will your heart be hardness and hostility or will it be softness and surrender? There is something very Christian about the adage, the pen is mightier than the sword. In the Christian worldview, truth and ideas matter foremost. Material objects and material events do matter. They're not unimportant, but they are of secondary importance. They're downstream of ideas. You see, doctrine produces practice in our lives. What we believe feeds how we live. It feeds the outward effects of our bodies. And the primary place that we see Jesus' power at work in the world is by the exercise of his word. It seems foolish to the world. That doesn't seem like power to them. They're saying, what are you talking about? That's nothing. That's not real power. It's easily overlooked, easily scorned. But for those of us who have been given eyes to see, Jesus' word is true power. He rules in the midst of his enemies. So, fellow believers, do you want to see spiritual power? Forget the fireworks of signs and wonders. Open up this book and attend to the word of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. I'm not just talking about the red letters. It's all the word of Christ. Attend to it with reverence careful reflection and let it do its work there's always more going on in the text than you and i have yet realized there's always more depths again christ is the treasury of all god's wisdom so keep digging with zeal and hunger to meet your lord with greater apprehension of his glory and when we gather and hear his word lean forward i don't necessarily mean physically but have a posture in your heart of leaning forward to listen attend to his word with reverence and reflection Jesus reigns as a man, he reigns as the Son of God, and he reigns by his powerful words. Fourthly, Jesus reigns over a heavenly kingdom, not earthly. He reigns over a heavenly kingdom, not earthly. Now, we've already seen how he's pushing his audience to recognize the Messiah's glory, his divinity. But in doing this, he's also doing something else. He's critiquing their Messianic expectations. What do they think the Messiah is going to do? What do they think he's going to be? I mentioned earlier that many Jews in Jesus' day, including these scribes, were looking for a national political Messiah. It felt to them like they had never really returned from the exile. They had never really gotten their nation back and their land back and all the promises that God made to the patriarchs. They had just been passed from one set of imperial overlord hands to another. Now it's the Romans at this point, and they want deliverance. They want restoration for their nation in the land of promise. But Jesus is here pushing the concept of Messiah toward heavenly Lord. You see, he's trying to show the Messiah means heavenly Lord. He's showing them something more transcendent about his reign. Don't expect me to sit on a Jerusalem throne like the other Davidic kings, at least not yet. The Messiah sits next to God, the Father, in heaven, sharing his rule and glory. It's a heavenly reign over a spiritual kingdom. It is not a physical reign over an earthly kingdom. And this just fits with the irony of the cross. It's the the shadow of the cross. This whole story is moving toward this climactic moment of Jesus' death here in Mark. And Jesus' death will shock us by, by overlaying his bodily weakness on his spiritual power. that It will be the most potent spiritual thing that Jesus will do is when he's bodily at his weakest. In fact, when bodily, he is utterly crushed as a physical man. That's his moment of greatest spiritual triumph. His kingdom is of a different order than human kingdoms and human governments. And that means that our identity as a church, we are a spiritual people We are ruled, as we just saw, by the word of Christ. Now, as I I pointed out in the last point, this doesn't mean that our outward and physical lives don't matter. Jesus' reign is a domain in which inner transformation issues forth into the, the visible fruit of changed lives. So our bodies and what we do with our actions are very important. But again, what's primary is spiritual. He rules us as a spiritual people by his word. He said this to Pilate in his trial. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. And Peter tried that, and he rebuked Peter. He says, but my kingdom is not from the world. We're not grappling for political power. And this means that our quest for a righteous ruler of this world, who will satisfy our deep longings for peace and justice, This is a good desire, it's a godly desire, but it will have to wait until Jesus comes back. It'll have to wait till he comes. There will be no utopic kingdom of righteousness until Jesus himself splits the sky and comes back and merges heaven with earth in this new creation on that great and final day. That's the, the resolution, that's the fulfillment of all of these longings. And it won't happen before. Now, you might believe that when he comes, he'll first establish a millennial kingdom when he arrives. That is a kingdom that isn't yet the perfect final state, but it is very close. And then he'll go from there to the final state. Or you might think that we'll go straight to final judgment and the final state. Either way on that question, it doesn't affect this point. Jesus' kingdom only becomes earthly when he returns to earth. And in our day, we need to be aware of attempts to establish Christ's kingdom in the Political order. There are a lot of conversations swirling about this stuff right now. certain corners of the internet, Christians agitating over uh, Christian nationalism. What do we make of this concept? And it's a complicated conversation. I don't want to weigh in uh, completely. But, but a lot of us look around and we, we lament the loss of the West's Christian heritage. We lament the way that our society is sliding into godlessness and kind of neo-paganism. These are valid concerns. But one tempting and wrong-headed impulse is to advocate, to say we're going to bring the kingdom of God by way of human political power. It will not look that way. Now, it is a great blessing to have godly leaders. We should pray for godly leaders. And it is a good thing when all of society's laws are just, meaning that they accord with God's natural law, God's own justice. So those are good things we should care about. I'm not advocating that Christian belief should retreat from the public square. But here's the rub. This is the important thing. The kingdom of earth is fundamentally a different order than the kingdom of Christ for now. He'll come and merge them together, but for now he sits on a throne in heaven. Uh, The words of the angel in Revelation 11.15, anticipating Jesus' return, says, this is so interesting, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. See that merger? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's the day we long for. And until that great day of his return, we have this weird identity that we live in this world as citizens of another one. It is an uncomfortable existence. This is one of the reasons I think that these attempts to kind of bring about Christ's kingdom on earth are so appealing. is because it's weird and uncomfortable to be citizens of two kingdoms at once. The Bible calls the church sojourners and strangers in this world. And our calling is not to expect the world to become less strange. Our calling is not to move to another state where it feels less strange. Our calling is to live as faithful citizens of both kingdoms at once and to negotiate sometimes a tricky uh, interface between the two. We, we talked about this earlier in Mark 12 when Jesus was confronted. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he gives this great principle to pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. There's some complicated thinking that's required there. We submit to governing authorities. It says Romans 13, 1 7. We give Caesar everything that belongs to Caesar and we give Caesar nothing that belongs to God. At the same time, as Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a profound connection that where we belong is heaven and so what we're doing now is we're waiting we're waiting for from hev- for heaven's ruler to come and establish his kingdom on earth and waiting is uncomfortable and waiting is awkward that's that's our calling at this point as god's people so jesus reigns as a man he reigns as god he reigns by his word and he reigns over a heavenly kingdom The fifth and final feature we'll see is that Jesus reigns as a priest who brings us to God. Jesus reigns as a priest who brings us to God. Now, you might be thinking, where on earth do you get priesthood from this text? I don't see anything about priesthood. Well, it's implicit, it's it's hinted in the text itself. There are breadcrumbs that leave a trail. So, the first thing is in verse 35, where is he? He's in the temple. He's teaching probably a lot of things. This is part of a larger body of instruction he's giving. And and uh, among that teaching, he says these things. But he's in the temple, the place of of, uh, worship, the sanctuary of meeting with God, which is in itself not a big deal. But remember how we looked at Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, and said, wow, it gets interesting when you look at verse 2. It gets more interesting when you look at verse 4 of Psalm 110. David the psalmist continues and says to the my Lord, he's talking to the my Lord, Messiah, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, without getting into all the weeds about Melchizedek, the big takeaway here is that he was a symbolic figure. He appeared in Genesis, and he represents the unique merger of, of the two offices of king and priest. None of the men who occupied these offices in Israel were allowed to occupy both. A priest could not be a king, and a king could not be a priest. God was very clear to separate these offices. But this guy Melchizedek, way back in Genesis, he was both. And that was really weird. But it was actually really important as a type of Christ. And the author of Hebrews brings this out and saying, see, that this, this prophecy of you being like Melchizedek is pointing to Christ. And it's not just a temporary role of being like a priest-king like Melchizedek, but it says you are a priest forever. This is Christ. He's a king-priest forever. Again, Hebrews draws this out, this idea of the priestly uh, role of Christ in heaven. We call this Jesus' session, meaning his being up there at the throne of God in heaven. And Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 is one beautiful passage of what it means that our... Lord is a priest in heaven for us. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. I mean, he's passed up all the way to the top. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. In time of need, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, not only as a reigning king, but as a priest who mediates our access day and night to that same throne. He's there forever, he's there right now, assuring us of constant welcome at the throne of grace from the Father who loves us and who appointed Jesus to do that very thing, to make our way to him. So now and forever, our fellowship with God is not localized to a physical temple. It's not a place on earth. It exists wherever the people of God are, spiritually united to Jesus Christ and drawing near to the Father through him with praise and thanksgiving and prayers. Now you want to know Jesus this way. This talk of office as king and priest, it can sound a little bit abstract and, and it's very theological, but you want to know Jesus this way. As both priest and king. And each of these offices sweetens the other. If we had an impotent priest or a harsh king, we would be without hope. But as it is, the one who rules over all things, our king, is intensely invested in our consolation and our cleansing and our communion with God, our enjoyment of fellowship with God. And and on the other hand, the one who keeps us near to God, our priest, has all authority Over all events and all enemies in heaven and on earth. That's a really good thing that our king is our priest and our priest is our king. Now, I know that in real life this would be a horrible, unjust conflict of interest, so bear with me. It's unrealistic. But imagine you're on trial for a crime and the roles of your attorney and your judge were merged into one. What if the power to declare your verdict and your sentence were delegated to your advocate? who is committed, who you know is in your corner. You'd raise your eyebrows and be like, that's pretty good. <laughs> I don't think that's allowed. That seems too good to be true. Wouldn't you be pretty happy if that were the case? That the one who has the rule and the authority is your advocate in your corner. That's what it means for you and me, Christian, that Jesus is our priest and our king. That's what we have in him. We have authority and advocacy all together in the same person the gospel for us Christians is not just that it didn't end when Jesus died. You know that he was raised and you know that, that he ascended into heaven and you know that he'll return. But one easily overlooked aspect of the gospel is that at, between his ascension and his return, at this very moment, his ministry of his session goes on. That he is there in heaven advocating, mediating, pleading his all-sufficient blood for us and ruling over us so we should take the advice of the Hebrews author and be at the throne often in times of need that's pretty often somebody made that point today we were praying about this and someone said that's pretty much all the time we have needs it's really good there you're welcome there as long as Jesus has a place there it's your home too God could no sooner expel you than he could reject his own sinless and glorious son from heaven. And we know that's not the case because he's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So brothers and sisters, be quick to take your troubles there to the throne. The one who waits there for you both rules and represents. He has the answers, he has the power, he has the compassion to care for your soul. Whatever happens in this world, inside the stormy uh, trials in your own hearts or outside of you, whatever's happening in this life, Jesus rules and Jesus is your priest. He's up there in heaven for you. How heavy does this assurance weigh on you throughout your day? There's a certain way in which, boy, what, what kind of contentment and steadiness and assurance could this conviction bring to us? And once again, I appeal to those who don't yet know Jesus personally, to come to him in faith, to experience this life for yourself, to experience through him this fellowship of God that he shares only through Jesus, to take refuge in him and to know, again, both his, his mediation to God for you and his gracious rule over your life. So we've seen that Jesus reigns on a heavenly throne. He's one of us. He's a man the promised son of David in history. He's also the eternal and divine son of God who became flesh for our salvation and therefore has all the power to save. He gets it done. We've seen that he rules not an earthly kingdom by bureaucracy and bombs. He rules a heavenly kingdom by the mighty words of command and promise and declaration that we see on the pages of Scripture. And he rules as our priest who always intercedes for his own in the presence of his Father and ours. So, brothers and sisters, do not look around you for salvation. Don't look to men to rule you and to to bring you to some utopic resolution to all the aches and sorrows of this world. Rather, we say with the Apostle John, when he he got his glimpse of the heavenly kingdom that awaits Jesus' descent to earth, what did he say? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for showing us Jesus Christ, once again today. We thank you for everything we've seen about him, his humanity, his deity, his gracious and powerful rule by his word and his priestly intercession at your right hand. We pray that you would stir up in our souls adoration for him and a confidence in the sufficiency of his blood and his priestly work for us that we would be quick to go to your throne and seek mercy and grace that you are so eager to dispense. We pray that you would give us, by your Spirit, guard our hearts in the waiting for his coming. And give us wisdom to live in this world that's so contrary to you, representing him to the world and doing good for our neighbors, and yet being very realistic about what we expect this world to be like until that day comes. And we pray that every day our hunger for his coming would increase, and we would say in the depth of our hearts, come, Lord Jesus. And we do say even now that you would soon come, Lord Jesus. Amen.